Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A bill in the House would boost protections against discrimination of older workers, protections that were weakened by the Supreme Court back in 2009. The new bill is called the Protecting Older Workers Against Age Discrimination Act, or POWADA. Joining me with the specifics, Tully Rinke attorney Michael Fallings. Michael, good to have you back. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, this law applies to everyone in the public and private sectors, this proposed bill, correct? Correct. And in your experience, I mean, what types of discrimination occur against older workers in federal agencies? Because some of them, you know, hang around for a long time and like their careers. Well, towards the end of a federal employee's career, or even in the private sector, you'll see the employers start to push them out, so to speak, where they'll want these employees to leave the workforce. I've seen discrimination in that aspect where in the form of lower performance evaluations, stricter work assignments, and an effort to kind of push them out to increase levels of discipline um, and to set up that discipline for those older workers. And this happens in federal agencies? Correct. And let's review then what the law was and what happened in 2009 that changed it. Sure. So there's the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which applies to federal workers as well. And the standard has been a but-for causation standard, meaning that employees to prove age discrimination in employment must prove that age was the but-for cause or was the reason for their termination which overturned what was the mixed motive standard of proof where a employee just has to prove that age was a reason. So for example, if an employee could show, well, they use my age, yeah, my performance may have been not sufficient, but my age was a reason as well, that could still be an age discrimination violation. However, under the new standards that were put in place, that was not valid. You had to prove age was the reason, was the reason, the but-for reason for a violation. In other words, but for the age of the person, nothing bad would have happened. Correct. And this is what the Supreme Court ruled in a case some years ago. Yes. And did that seem to increase the amount of at least perceived discrimination because the standard did change, as you said? Well, I believe it increased actions taken by employers to let go of older employees um, and using reasons that weren't really the true reasons, you know, masking it in bad performance or masking it in, in layoffs or budgetary reasons, when really the reason was because of their age. I think I saw an increase in that, you know, in my practice, and because they knew it was harder for an employee to prove that age discrimination. Right. And so if there's a bad performance review in a series of them, it's pretty hard to say the but for because the employer has something. Well, no, it's not the age. Here's the last five performance reviews. But for is a higher standard. Having to prove that but for versus a mixed motive does make it tougher for an employee, especially when the employer is building that case against the employee for their so-called legitimate reasons to discipline an employee. We're speaking with Michael Fallings. He's an attorney with Tully Rinke, which represents federal employees. And so tell us about this new bill, who's behind it, and what would it do? Well, it would go back to the mixed motive um, standard the new administration has, I think for the reason we've been discussing, has seen this uptick in employees being removed and and employers masking the real reasons for the removal, you know, masking the age discrimination behind it with so-called legitimate reasons. 
So they want to shift back to the mixed motive standard, which would align with other discrimination statutes and their standards and what employees can prove. What other discrimination types of classes would this then resemble if this becomes law? Well, under Title VII, there's a mixed motive provisions where employees can prove discrimination based on retaliation or race using that mixed motive standard. And so the Age Discrimination Act with this new proposal would, you know, shift it back to what the Title VII standards are, are resembling. What happens if someone is older or they are in one of those protected classes and their performance really is bad? How does that resolve in general in your experience? Well, I mean, if their performance really is bad, I mean, that's going to be a reason for an employer to discipline an employee. But I think an employee also needs to be aware of whether or not their performance just becoming bad towards the end of their career. What I often see is an employee has been with this employer for 10, 20 years, you know, doing the same work. And then all of a sudden their performance has just become bad. And maybe it's because a new supervisor come in, maybe there's a new policy in place or something like that, but they know their job. So if that's the case, and let's say the supervisor has some legitimate basis behind it, employee could still consider using reasons of age discrimination and, and filing allegations to prove that this discipline is wrongful. All right. And again, who is behind the bill and is there bipartisan support as far as you can tell? Yes. From what I see, it, there is bipartisan support. And should this become law, what do you advise employees to do if they feel like they can sense this kind of discrimination coming on? Well, consider filing claims through the available avenues that federal employees or even private sector employees have. Contact local counsel if you need assistance in, in filing these claims. And yeah, if these actions are being taken, think about whether or not it is because of their age or because you know they've been with this company or with the government for a lengthy amount of time. Michael Fallings is an attorney with Tully Rinke. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. 
In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that over here. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to 
recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, 
that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.